Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Um, welcome to the Royal Academy. I'm delighted to uh, introduce the beginnings of yet another great collaboration with Pindrop, um, a visionary organisation who have already brought you um, many great writers to the Royal Academy, Lionel Shriver, William Boyd, Julian Barnes, and tonight, um, no exception, Sebastian Folks. And um, it's really interesting that we have an exhibition on Rubens and his legacy and the way that one artist has influenced others and the way that artists play with their own vision and, and voice and try and harmonize, utilize, coerce, co-opt, appropriate the voices of others. And um, it's significant tonight that Sebastian's, I'd say tangential response to the Rubens exhibition, because that's what we're asking writers to do, has been to look at the violence section, but he's going to read not one but two stories tonight, one by himself and one by another writer, which I will let Elizabeth Day and Simon Oldfield explain further, and I'll let Sebastian explain further. And I think that throws all sorts of interesting ideas up for the brief question and answer session that we'll have at the end. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce Simon and Elizabeth and enjoy the evening. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Um, thanks very much for coming and welcome to Pindrop at the Royal Academy. Um, we're absolutely delighted to continue our collaboration with this incredible organisation and institution. And tonight we're welcoming Sebastian Folks, which is an utter privilege. Um, for those of you who are new to Pindrop, we present award-winning authors um, reading short stories in incredible locations. It's a very simple concept, but that is what you're all here to experience. And without further ado, I'll hand you over to Elizabeth, who's going to briefly introduce Sebastian, and then we'll get on with the story. Yes, welcome. Um, it is a real honour to have Sebastian Folks read for us tonight. Um, he's going to read a Kipling short story called The Gardener, and then the other thing that he's going to read is a surprise. He won't tell us. Um, when I first got in touch with Sebastian, um, he jokingly said that he was writing his own short story called Fat Flemish Birds to tie in with the Rubens <laughs> exhibition, and it, it took me a while to work out that he was joking, I think. Um, he really is someone who needs no introduction, award-winning author of novels such as Birdsong, The Girl at the Lion d'Or, Charlotte Grey, Human Traces. It's almost easier to list the things he hasn't written about than the ones that he has. Um, without further ado, Sebastian, West Ham supporter, um, I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you so much for coming and uh, think of questions to ask at the end. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much for all those introductions, and I feel I ought to introduce somebody else, but um, <laughs> yes, sadly, the um, groundbreaking short story, uh, Fat Flemish Birds in the Nude, um, I, I wasn't able to finish it in time. I thought I was going to be reading against a backdrop of Rubens, but um, uh, I'm not, um, and actually I did see the um, exhibition, and there aren't that many... Um, naked women in it, or maybe I just didn't see them. Not that many Rubens in it, actually, but... Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, I did think, though, ab about the idea of um, a short story in an art gallery, and I thought about, you know, art and words mixing. And I remembered um, some time ago, uh, the first thing I want to admit is I've never written a short story, so I can't read you a short story of mine, because I've never written one. But I remembered uh, when I first arrived in London, soon after I had left uh, university, discovering Keats's house uh, in Hampstead. And I was a huge uh, fan of Keats. And I went to this house, and it belonged to a man called Charles Brown. And Charles Brown was a sort of wealthy merchant who decided, who took early retirement, uh, and to follow his own 
um, interest, which was painting. I don't think he was a very good painter. He was a sort of jobbing painter. May have, might have got in the summer exhibition here a couple of times, but nothing more than that. However, Keats, who was uh, a young man of uh, enormous ambition, lodged with him, and Charles Brown looked after him. Uh, and including the year 1819, which was uh, a most extraordinary year in this young man's life. So after a period of intense apprenticeship, in the spring of 1819, between um, April and June, as uh, Keats's biographer, uh, Walter Jackson Bate, put it, within about three weeks, he had written four of the greatest lyric poems in English. And this was a man with no formal training or even university education. But it, it, it struck me as I looked around this rather lovely house, uh, this very white, four-square sort of early Regency house, I suppose, uh, what it must have been like for Charles Brown uh, when this extraordinary creative explosion was taking place in his house. And there was a little um, a bit in the biography of Keats when Brown recalls, in the spring of 1819, a nightingale built her nest near my house. Keats felt a tranquil and continual joy in her song. And one morning, he took his chair from the breakfast table to the grass plot under a plum tree where he sat for two or three hours. When he came into the house, I perceived he had some scraps of paper in his hand, and these he was quietly thrusting behind the books. On inquiry, I found those scraps, four or five in number, contained his poetic feeling on the song of our nightingale. The other thing you probably should know is that Keats was a very ebullient, jolly little fellow. Um, he wasn't, although his poetry is exceedingly romantic, he himself was uh, pugnacious. People thought he'd be a success in life, but probably as a soldier uh, more than anything else. So this is uh, a poem. Well, uh, it's probably not really. Um, it's more a piece of verse. I don't think I've ever read a piece of verse in public before, so it's a bit of a first for me. And it imagines what Brown must have been thinking. And it's called, rather prosaically, Keats in Charles Brown's House, Hampstead, summer 1819. Morning, Brown, he may have said, smiling, hitching up his trousers, glancing at the Hogarth prints he silently disliked. I think I'll take some air, and bounced out over the steps of his sitting room into the walled back garden. Mrs. Braun next door, solicitous for her daughters, lonely widow, pushes back the curtain on April sunshine flooding her gentility. Who is this little maverick man? And do I like his military dash? Can Fanny's heart be trusted? But Brown stares at the glass of his bookcase, wanders off in thought. Look at this inkstand. How does he dip his pen? What angle brings those words? What muscling of hand and thought draws the wet nib past the bronze of Shakespeare's head? It might be easier but for his cheer. Even his evasions are polite. So yesterday after breakfast, in a hint of summer, he pushed his chair back, smiled, I think I'll just, and was gone, this time quickly down the hall, out to the grass in the plum tree's shade. How was I to know? I spent the hours painting, lost in work, thought no more of him, till on his return, self-consciously, he thrust some paper scraps behind his shelved books. I went to save them from Abigail's keen tidying. I didn't think to read what then my eyes revealed. This living hand, this boy's smile, 
are tracing out the heavens here within the whitewashed calm of my routine. A stable master's son from Edmonton has dared to tell in words that may not die the story of a world's impermanence. How many weeks to state his claim? An urn, a nightingale? By autumn, it may already be too late for the tired gleaners to go among the rows of stubble, the harvest of three months, in which the summer of his dream will change the tilled land forever. He rests now. I see his jacket's crease, the flop of his brown hair, a glass of claret on the wicker seat. Sleep well, John. For I knew today, when from the garden I heard his gasping cough, that we shall not have long before this flood tides ebb. The omnibus on whose top deck he caught his chill is clattering down to Camden. He hears no hooves. For him, the moon draws on, arrayed with all her stars. His casement opens not on grass, but on deep seas he now must sail, while the planets of his mind are briefly fixed. In Europe's generation, it falls to him to be the comet, to write through fever of his hand the lines that will anatomize and mourn the passing of sensation, yet by their immortality preserve it. I shall miss him, as one misses youth or love that failed. I shall help him strain to break through time and stamp his destined dream in black ink at my desk, then shudder to have known the force that has forever made my white walls sing. That was, uh, that was Keats. And this is Kipling. Rudyard Kipling is a difficult writer and drastically out of fashion. I'm not saying he's bad, I'm saying he's out of fashion. Um, and for many reasons, he writes about things which people aren't much interested in anymore, the role of the NCO in India, and things like this. And there is a sort of um, political correctness, I suppose, to use a rather worn-out term, uh, by which uh, young people graduate from university having read about three books, one of them Harry Potter, with a conv <laughs> with the conviction that their take on the world, their take on culture, race, empire, right and wrong, is the perfect pinnacle to which all the long centuries have been struggling, and that everyone else before was simply wrong. Uh, this, of course, is quite hilarious, um, but it has had a bad effect on certain writers. Um, Lawrence, of course, is another one. And the other problem with Kipling uh, is that there's a certain lack of charm, I think, in his, his work. And I, I think you see this in the school stories, which you're begging for something, you're begging him to come to you and help you a bit. Um, and charm, of course, is, is superficial and it's not indispensable for a writer, but it does, if the writer, if the reader, rather, is has been a little bit charmed. It does make, the, make them more receptive. But Kipling was a great writer in many genres, in prose and verse. And the story I'm going to read is called The Gardener, which he wrote in 1926. Uh, Kipling lost his only son in the First World War in 1915 at the Battle of Luce. Uh, and he then became very involved with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, which is this extraordinary uh, organization which was set up first of all to bury and then think of a way of commemorating the million-odd British as well as um, hundreds of thousands of Commonwealth dead as well. And uh, Kipling was very active in this, but his greatest contribution was uh, to uh, determine a form of words to be used on the headstones of uh, the soldiers who were unidentified. 
France, being a lay republic with no established church, simply has soldat inconnu, unknown soldier. Uh, but Kipling came up with the nine greatest words of his career, which were, a soldier of the great war known unto God. And, you know, the enormous amount of comfort that must have brought to the millions of uh, grieving people is remarkable. I mention all this as background because uh, this uh, story, The Garden, was published in 1926, and it deals with these themes. And it begins, you need to listen very carefully at the beginning, because it's quite misleading. Normally, if, if a writer tells a story in the third person, uh, they're obliged to tell the exact truth. If they tell the story in the first person, they can say anything. They can mislead you as much as they like. They can be as unreliable as you want. Early on in this story, Kipling is, you just listen carefully. Maybe he's telling it from his point of view. Maybe he's telling it from Helen's point of view. And maybe the facts, in inverted commas, he's giving you aren't quite as factual as they seem. It then settles down um, into a much more conventional story until the end, uh, which gives you a most tremendous kick uh, in the seat of the pants. Um, I'm sure you, I'm looking at you, you all look incredibly well read. I don't need to um, tell you anything about the Bible. I'm having a bit of a sort of Tom Stoppard moment here, but I think you all, all know about the Bible, the New Testament, the resurrection, and so on. You do, good. Uh, <laughs> I may cry when I get to the end of this, uh, but don't be embarrassed, because uh, embarrassment is quite a small emotion compared to those that these people went through. Um, and sometimes the sentences are a bit rough too, so I'll probably stumble as well, but don't be embarrassed about that either, please. The Gardener, by Rudyard Kipling. Everyone in the village knew that Helen Turrell did her duty by all her world, and by none more honorably than by her only brother's unfortunate child, the village knew, too, that George Turrell had tried his family severely since early youth and were not surprised to be told that, after many fresh starts given and thrown away, he, an inspector of Indian police, had entangled himself with the daughter of a retired non-commissioned officer and had died of a fall from a horse a few weeks before his child was born. Mercifully, George's father and mother were both dead, and though Helen, 35 and independent, might well have washed her hands of the whole disgraceful affair, she most nobly took charge, though she was at the time under threat of lung trouble, which had driven her to the south of France. She arranged for the passage of the child and a nurse from Bombay, met them at Marseille, nursed the baby through an attack of infantile dysentery due to the carelessness of the nurse, whom she had had to dismiss, and at last, thin and worn but triumphant, brought the boy late in the autumn, wholly restored, to her Hampshire home. All these details were public property, for Helen was as open as the day and held that scandals are only increased by hushing them up. She admitted that George had always been rather a black sheep, but things might have been much worse if the mother had insisted on her right to keep the boy. Luckily, it seemed that people of that class would do almost anything for money, and as George had always turned to her in his scrapes, she felt herself justified, her friends agreed with her, in cutting the whole non-commissioned officer connection and giving the child every advantage. A christening by the rector under the name of Michael was the first step. So far as she knew herself, she was not, she said, a child lover, but for all his faults, she had been very fond of her brother George, and she pointed out that little Michael had his father's mouth to a line, which made something to build upon. 
As a matter of fact, it was the Turrell forehead, broad, low, and well-shaped, with widely spaced eyes beneath it, that Michael had most faithfully reproduced. His mouth was somewhat better cut than the family type. But Helen, who would concede nothing good to the mother's side, vowed he was a Turrell all over, and there being no one to contradict, the likeness was established. In a few years, Michael took his place as accepted as Helen had always been, fearless, philosophical, and fairly good-looking. At six, he wished to know why he could not call her mummy, as other boys called their mothers. She explained that she was only his auntie, and that aunties were not quite the same as mummies, but that, if it gave him pleasure, he might call her mummy at bedtime, for a pet name between themselves. Michael kept this secret most loyally, but Helen, as usual, explained the fact to her friends, which when Michael heard, he raged. Why did you tell? Why did you tell? Came at the end of the storm. Because it's always best to tell the truth, Helen answered, her arm round him as he shook in his cot. All right, but when the truth's ugly, I don't think it's nice. Don't you, dear? No, I don't, and she felt the small body stiffen. Now you've told, I won't call you mummy anymore, not even at bedtimes. But isn't that rather unkind, said Helen softly. I don't care, I don't care. You've hurt me in my inside and I'll hurt you back. I'll hurt you as long as I live. Don't, don't talk like that, dear. You don't know, I will, and when I'm dead I'll hurt you worse. Thank goodness I shall be dead long before you, darling. Huh? Emma says, never know your luck. Michael had been talking to Helen's elderly, flat-faced maid. Lots of little boys die quite soon, so will I. Then you'll see. Helen caught her breath and moved towards the door, but the wail of, Mummy, Mummy, drew her back again, and the two wept together. At ten years old, after two terms at a prep school, something or somebody gave Michael the idea that his civil status was not quite regular. He attacked Helen on the subject, breaking down her stammered defences with the family directness. Do I believe a word of it, he said cheerily at the end. People wouldn't have talked like that, like they did, if my people had been married. But don't you bother, auntie. I found all about my sort in English history and the Shakespeare bits. There was William the Conqueror to begin with, and oh, heaps more, and they all got first rate in the end. Won't make any difference to you, my being that, will it? As if anything could, she began. All right. We won't talk about it any more if it makes you cry. He never mentioned the thing again of his own will, but when two years later he skillfully managed to have measles in the holidays, as his temperature went up to the appointed 104, he muttered of nothing else, till Helen's voice, piercing at last his delirium, reached him with assurance that nothing on earth or beyond could make any difference between them. The terms at his public school and the wonderful Christmas, Easter and summer holidays followed each other, variegated and glorious as jewels on a string, and as jewels Helen treasured them. In due time, Michael developed his own interests, which ran their courses and gave way to others. But his interest in Helen was constant and increasing throughout. She repaid it with all that she had of affection or could command of counsel and money. And since Michael was no fool, the war took him just before what was like to have been a most promising career. He was to have gone up to Oxford with a scholarship in October. At the end of August, he was on the edge of joining the first Holocaust of public school boys who threw themselves into the line. But the captain of his officer training corps, 
who had been sergeant for nearly a year, headed him off and steered him directly to a commission in a battalion so new that half of it still wore the old army red and the other half was breeding meningitis through living overcrowdedly in damp tents. Helen had been shocked at the idea of direct enlistment. But it's in the family, Michael laughed. You don't mean to tell me you believe that old story all this time, said Helen. Emma, her maid, had been dead now several years. I gave you my word of honour, and I give it again, that, that, that it's all right. It is indeed. Oh, that doesn't worry me. It never did, he replied valiantly. What I meant was, I should have got into the show earlier if I'd enlisted, like my grandfather. Don't talk like that. Are you afraid of its ending so soon, then? No such luck. You know what Kay says. Yes, but my banker told me last Monday it couldn't possibly last beyond Christmas for financial reasons. Obi's right, but our colonel, and he's a regular, says it's going to be a long job. Michael's battalion was fortunate in that, by some chance which meant several leaves, it was used for coast defence among shallow trenches on the Norfolk coast, thence sent north to watch the mouth of a Scottish estuary, and lastly held for weeks on a baseless rumour of distant service. But the very day that Michael was to have met Helen for four whole hours at a railway junction up the line, it was hurled out to help make good the wastage of loose, and he had only just time to send her a wire of farewell. In France, luck again helped the battalion. It was put down near the salient, where it led a meritorious and unexacting life while the Somme was being manufactured, and enjoyed the peace of the Armentières and Laventie sectors when that battle began. Finding that it had sound views on protecting its own flanks and could dig, a prudent commander stole it out of its own division under pretense of helping to lay telegraphs and used it round Ypres at large. A month later, and just after Michael had written Helen that there was nothing special doing and therefore no need to worry, a shell splinter dropping out of a wet dawn killed him at once. The next shell uprooted and laid down over the body what had been the foundation of a barn wall, so neatly that none but an expert would have guessed that anything unpleasant had happened. By this time, the village was old in experience of war, and English fashion had evolved a ritual to meet it. When the postmistress handed her seven-year-old daughter the official telegram to take to Miss Turrell, she observed to the rector's gardener, it's Miss Helen's turn now. He replied, thinking of his own son, well, he's lasted longer than some. The child herself came to the front door weeping aloud because Master Michael had often given her sweets. Helen presently found herself pulling down the house blinds, one after one, with great care and saying earnestly to each, missing always means dead. Then she took her place in the dreary procession that was impelled to go through an inevitable series of unprofitable emotions. The rector, of course, preached hope and prophesied word very soon from a prison camp. Several friends, too, told her perfectly truthful tales, but always about other women to whom, after months and months of silence, their missing had been miraculously restored. Other people urged her to communicate with infallible secretaries of organizations who could communicate with benevolent neutrals, who could extract accurate information from the most secretive of Hun prison commandants. Helen did, and wrote and signed everything that was suggested or put before her. 
Once, on one of Michael's leaves, he had taken her over a munition factory where she saw the progress of a shell from blank iron to the all but finished article. It struck her at the same time that the wretched thing was never left alone for a single second, and I'm being manufactured into a bereaved next of kin, she told herself as she prepared her documents. In due course, when all the organizations had deeply or sincerely regretted their inability to trace, etc., something gave way within her, and all sensation, save of thankfulness for the release, came to an end in blessed passivity. Michael had died, and her world had stood still, and she had been one with the full shock of that arrest. Now she was standing still, and the world was going forward, but it did not concern her. In no way or relation did it touch her. She knew this by the ease with which she could slip Michael's name into talk and incline her head to the proper angle at the proper murmur of sympathy. In the blessed realization of that relief, the armistice with all its bells broke over her and passed unheeded. At the end of another year, she had overcome her physical loathing of the living and the returned young so that she could take them by the hand and almost sincerely wish them well. She had no interest in any aftermath, national or personal, of the war, but moving at an immense distance, she sat on various relief committees and held strong views. She heard herself delivering them about the site of the proposed village war memorial. Then there came to her, as next of kin, an official intimation backed by a page of a letter to her in indelible pencil a silver identity disc and a watch to the effect that the body of Lieutenant Michael Turrell had been found, identified, and reinterred in Hagenzeler Third Military Cemetery, the letter of the row and the grave's number in that row duly given. So Helen found herself moved on to another process of the manufacture, to a world full of exultant or broken relatives, now strong in the certainty that there was an altar upon earth where they might lay their love. These soon told her, and by means of timetables made clear, how easy it was, and how little it interfered with life's affairs, to go and see one's grave. So different, said the rector's wife, if he'd been killed in Mesopotamia or even Gallipoli. The agony of being waked up to some sort of second life drove Helen across the channel, where, in a new world of abbreviated titles, she learned that Hagenzela III could be comfortably reached by an afternoon train, which fitted in with the morning boat, and that there was a comfortable little hotel not three kilometers from the Hagenzela itself, where one could spend quite a comfortable night and see one's grave next morning. All this she had from a central authority who lived in a board and tar paper shed on the skirts of a raised city, full of whirling lime dust and blown papers. By the way, said he, you know your grave, of course. Yes, thank you, said Helen, and showed its row and number typed on Michael's own little typewriter. The officer would have checked it out of one of his many books, but a large Lancashire woman thrust between them and bade him tell her where she might find her son, who had been corporal in the ASC. His proper name, she sobbed, was Anderson, Becoming a respectable folk, he had, of course, enlisted under the name of Smith and had been killed at Dickey Bush in early 15. She had not his number, nor did she know which of his two Christian names he might have used with his alias, but her cook's tourist ticket expired at the end of Easter week, and if by then she couldn't find the child, she would go mad. 
Whereupon she fell forward on Helen's breast, but the officer's wife came out quickly from a little bedroom behind the office, and the three of them lifted the woman onto the cot. They're often like this, said the officer's wife, loosening her tight bonnet strings. Yesterday she said he'd been killed at Hoog. Are you sure you know your grave? It does make such a difference. Yes, thank you, said Helen, and hurried out before the woman on the bed should begin to lament again. Tea, in a crowded mauve and blue striped wooden structure with a false front, carried her still further into the nightmare. She paid her bill beside a stolid, plain-featured Englishwoman, who, hearing her inquire about the train to Hagenzele, volunteered to come with her. Oh, I'm going there myself, she explained. Not to Hagenzele third. Mine's Sugar Factory, but they call it La Rosière now. It's just south of Hagenzele three. Have you got your room at the hotel there? Oh, yes, thank you. I wired. That's better. Sometimes the place is quite full, and at others there's hardly a soul. But they've put bathrooms into the old Leon door. That's the hotel on the west side of Sugar Factory. It draws off a lot of people, luckily. It's all new to me. This is the first time I've been over. Really? This is my ninth time since the armistice. Not on my own account. I haven't lost anyone, thank God. <laughs> no, no. But like everyone else, I've a lot of friends at home who have. Coming over as often as I do, I find it helps them to have someone just to look at the look at the place and tell them about it afterwards. And one can take photos for them too. I get quite a list of commissions to execute. She laughed nervously and tapped her slung Kodak. There were two or three to see at Sugar Factory this time, and plenty of others in the cemeteries all about. My system is to save them up and arrange them, you know. And when I've got enough commissions for one area to make it worthwhile, I pop over and execute them. It does comfort people. I uh, suppose so. Helen answered, shivering as they entered the little train. Of course it does. Isn't it lucky we've got window seats? It must do, or they wouldn't ask one to do it, would they? I've a list of quite 12 or 15 commissions here. She tapped the Kodak again. I must sort them out tonight. Oh, I've got to ask you, what's yours? My nephew, said Helen. But I was very fond of him. Oh, yes. I sometimes wonder whether they know after death. What do you think? Oh, I don't haven't dared to think much about that sort of thing, said Helen, almost lifting her hands up to keep the woman off. Perhaps that's better, the woman answered. The sense of loss must be enough, I expect. Well, I won't worry you any more. Helen was grateful, but when they reached the hotel, Mrs. Scarsworth, they had exchanged names, insisted on dining at the same table with her, and after the meal in the little hideous salon full of low-voiced relatives, took Helen through the commissions with biographies of the dead, where she happened to know them and sketches of their next of kin. Helen endured till nearly half past nine ere she fled to her room. Almost at once, there was a knock at her door and Mrs. Scarsworth entered, her hands holding the dreadful list clasped before her. Yes, yes, I know, she began. You're sick of me, but I want to tell you something. You, you, you aren't married, are you? Then perhaps you won't, but it doesn't matter. I've got to tell someone. I can't go on any longer like this. Please, Mrs. Scarsworth had backed against the shut door and her mouth worked dryly. In a minute, she said, you, you know about those graves of mine I was telling you about downstairs just now. They really are commissions, at least several of them are. Her eye wandered around the room. What extraordinary wallpapers they have in Belgium, don't you think? Yes, I swear they are commissions, but there's one, do you see? And he was more to me than anything else in the world. Do you understand? Helen nodded. More than anyone else, and of course, he oughtn't to have been. He ought to have been nothing to me, but he was. He is. 
That's why I do the commissions, you see. That's all. Why do you tell me? Helen asked desperately. Because I'm so tired of lying. Tired of lying. Always lying year in and year out. When I don't tell lies, I've got to act them. I've got to think them always. You don't know what that means. He was everything to me that he oughtn't to have been. The one real thing, the only thing that ever happened to me in all my life. And I've had to pretend he wasn't. I've had to watch every word I said and think out what lie I'll tell next for years and years. How many years? Helen asked. Six years and four months before and two and three quarters after. I've gone to him eight times since. Tomorrow will make the ninth and I can't, I can't go to him again with nobody in the world knowing. I want to be honest with someone before I go. Do you understand? It doesn't matter about me. I was never truthful, even as a girl. But it isn't worthy of him, so I had to tell you. I can't keep it up any longer. I can't. She lifted her joined hands almost to the level of her mouth and brought them down sharply, still joined, to full arm's length below her waist. Helen reached forward, caught them, bowed her head over them and murmured, Oh, my dear, my dear. Mrs. Scarsworth stepped back, her face all mottled. My God, said she, is that how you take it? Helen could not speak, and the woman went out, but it was a long while before Helen was able to sleep. Next morning, Mrs. Scarsworth left early on her round of commissions, and Helen walked alone to Hagenzele III. The place was still in the making, and stood some five or six feet above the metalled road, which it flanked for hundreds of yards. Culverts across a deep ditch served for entrances through the unfinished boundary wall. She climbed a few wooden-faced earthen steps and then met the entire crowded level of the thing in one held breath. She did not know that Hagenzele III counted 21,000 dead already. All she saw was a merciless sea of black crosses bearing little strips of stamped tin at all angles across their faces. She could distinguish no order or arrangement in their mass, nothing but a waist-high wilderness as of weed-stricken dead rushing at her. She went forward, moved to the left and the right, hopelessly, wondering by what guidance she should ever come to her own. A great distance away, there was a line of whiteness it proved to be a block of some two or three hundred graves whose headstones had already been set, whose flowers were planted out, and whose new-sown grass showed green. Here she could see clear-cut letters at the ends of the rows, and referring to her slip of paper, realized that it was not here that she must look. A man knelt behind a line of headstones, evidently a gardener, for he was firming a young plant in the soft earth. She went towards him, her paper in her hand. He rose at her approach and without prelude or salutation said, who are you looking for? Lieutenant Michael Turrell, my nephew, said Helen slowly and word for word as she had many thousands of times in her life. The man lifted his eyes and looked at her with infinite compassion before he turned from the fresh sown grass toward the naked black crosses. Come with me, he said, and I will show you where your son lies. When Helen left the cemetery, she turned for a last look in the distance. She saw the man bending over his young plants, 
and she went away, supposing him to be the gardener. I don't know if I can speak after that. Um, thank you so much. I think one of the things you learn doing Pinjob is that there are many great authors and there aren't that many who are great readers. Um, and there are some authors who are very good at reading their own work. But it's an exceptional privilege and a real rarity to find someone who reads so brilliantly someone else's work and who is generous enough to do that. Um, it was so beautiful. Thank you. I'm now going to open the floor to questions. I'm really sorry, Sebastian, you've got to come back up. Um, Lady in the front row, yes. <laughs> Do you like reading aloud? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> um, I haven't really, uh, I've never read a short story in public. It's such a sort of weird thing to do. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to do it, to see what it was like. It's like, you know, incest and folk dancing or not, you know, to try everything once, <laughs> except those two. But you never know quite how it's going to go and you're worried about people coughing and scraping their feet and not paying attention. But it, there's something about reading someone else's work which is better than reading your own because it's, it's less sort of vainglorious and egotistical, especially if you know it's, it's a good story. So you can... I quite enjoyed it, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that should be our new pin drop motto, incest, folk dancing and short stories. <laughs> Just try all of them once. Um, but did you come across that, that short story when you were doing research for your own First World War work? Uh, no, uh, I came across, it was read to me, funnily enough, uh, by, in my last year at school. I used to go uh, in the evenings to a, a history teacher, and he, t he sort of gave me extra tuition in you know, various off-the-curriculum things. And one evening he said, uh, now then, uh, Sebi, which is what he used to call me, um, Kipling, you probably think he's a terrible old fart, don't you? And I said, what? He said, oh, you've got to understand, he's a very, very clever writer, and he just read this whole thing to me. And of course, because I'd been brought up in a very uh, sort of uh, with a lot of Bible study, um, it wasn't particularly religious, but you know we just studied the Bible a lot. The the, the resonance of the gardener, and uh, you know it spoke to me very strongly. Mary Magdalene, the stone. Yeah, you all got it. Yes. And anyone? Have you ever written anything yourself that made you cry? And if you did, what did you do with it? Did you keep it in, or did you take it out? Um, yes. Uh, Quite often, uh, in in uh, I find that um, find myself strangely impressed by what I've known. <laughs> you did. Uh, I mean, obviously, Birdsong, for instance, which deals with uh, the First World War, and uh, you know, this is a deeply upsetting subject. And there were moments of uh, I felt sort of very choked with anger, rage, grief, sadness, and so on. But it's absolutely no good um, thinking that if you type harder, you'll somehow convey that. So, you know, I think they, what you have to do is uh, take a deep breath, go for a walk, think about something else, read the Evening Standard, um, whatever it might be. And what you have to do is find a way of evoking in the reader the same emotion that you have felt. But you can't do it by shouting at them. You've got to find what they call an objective correlative. In other words, there's sort of something between the two of you which you can both relate to and which will evoke that response in them. What gave you the inspiration to write about the girl from the Lyon d'Or? Um, that's a book that I published a long time ago. Um, I had been interested in France for a long time and in its history. Uh, and 
I was just beginning to find what I really wanted to write about, which um, was in the early books I wrote about um, how it was sort of who are we really and how do we get into this mess. It's quite a sort of young man's book uh, because when you grow up you, ex you accept everything that your parents tell you and this is the world, this is the way it is, the way it always has been. But then if you're curious and inquiring and you're lucky enough to have an education of some kind, when you get to about 20 you think, this is not all right, this is weird, this is terrible, this is how on earth did my parents and grandparents and people before mess up? You know, I was growing up in the 60s and 70s and you know, on the edge of nuclear war and despite the fact that my father had fought in one war just finished and my grandfather another one before and I thought, you know, hang on a minute, how do we get here? And then, but I didn't really just want to write history or sort of historical novels. I was always interested in the sort of more, the inner life of people and their feelings and so on. So these, all these early books are really about the same thing. They're about people's very private emotions and love affairs and feelings for their families, their friends, their lovers and so on. But how these things are affected by the big movement of, of things over which people have no control. And, and of course, that's very much what that Kipling story is about, actually, this... Helen, who's ob we don't really know who the father um, of the child is, but it's certainly Helen's child and the story of the, the naughty brother in India and the non-commissioned officers of fabrication. And she's gone to the south of France to have the baby quietly. Um, whether the we know we don't know who the father is, but it's there again. You see this sort of extraordinary secret that she's kept, which has been her life and the whole meaning of her life, and then it's sort of blown away in a sort of twenty-one thousand graves. And that's just one small cemetery and so on. And so that's what The Girl of the Leon d'Or is about, really. I mean, uh, given that we are in the RA and you chose that story to respond to the Rubens exhibition, do you find art inspiring? Do you sometimes take yourself off to look at paintings to get ideas? Uh, yes. I'm, I'm actually, I, th I had thought of reading a, p a poem I wrote, um, which is called Met Again, which is, I wrote in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. But it was just too long. And um, it was a bit sort of self-admiring, I think, too. It was, all about, it was just sort of people can take enough you know, art history, I think. And, but yes, I do a lot. Um, and when I left school, I, le I went to Paris for about... Um, four or five months to, uh, to learn French. And I was incredibly lonely and miserable in a sort of horrid little attic room and didn't have any friends and didn't know anyone. And I just went to art galleries all day and every day with your student uh, ticket. It was unbelievably cheap. It was the only, only thing that was cheap. The Metro was quite cheap. And the, the baguette with cheese uh, sandwich was cheap if you prepared to have it without butter, but that meant walking quite a lot further. Uh, I w I'd, the Impressionists then were housed in the Jeu de Pomme, but it was before the uh, Musée d'Orsay, and I would go there pretty well every day and just sort of look and try and sort of figure out how this was done, what was going on, and the extraordinary to me, uh, that the way that they had somehow squared a circle, of they'd taken a sort of natural scene, but somehow they'd made it reveal something of some inner life inside it, and I just, I was completely fascinated by it. Um, so French art has always meant, uh, French pa painting has meant a huge amount to me. Um, and of course, the, you know, the, the Musée d'Orsay has a, you know, it's a spectacular place. But I always, recently I've always seemed to see it in America, I never seem to go to Paris anymore. But uh, other, all other art forms, I mean, I've learned about how to construct novels, I've learned almost entirely from music, from classical symphonies. 
uh, you know, Beethoven, you know, really bog standard sort of three movements, uh, four movements, whatever it might be, recapitulation, theme, exposition, variation, and so on. And as far as actually storytelling is concerned, um, film is the, film's the way to go. Uh, films are, you know, they have their limitations, and you know, they don't, there's a lot of room for fine words or writing in that sense. But in terms of, of storytelling, I mean, in the way they can reveal and go backwards and forwards. So, yeah, I, I can't remember what the question was now. Yes, <laughs> I like paintings, yes. What, what have you learned from Girls Aloud? Aren't they a particular favourite? Um, Girls Aloud. Yes, well, I went to see Girls Aloud. My daughter insisted on taking me to Wembley Arena because they, they had one song I really liked uh, called The Promise. But unfortunately, they only had one song. They played it at the beginning. And then they played it again at the end. <laughs> and the bit in between was pretty rank, actually. <laughs> Talking of films, am I right in thinking that you've written something for James Bond? Uh, no, I wrote a, um, a novel, a sort of continuation James Bond novel to mark the centenary of Ian Fleming's birth. Um, why, they asked me, I just cannot imagine. I've never shown any interest in thrillers or spies. Um, but anyway, they, the Fleming family were very nice, and they paid me irrefusable sum of money to do it. <laughs> but it hasn't been made into a film, sadly, um, because the Flemings and the Broccolis, the Broccolis do the films, and they're sort of like the Montagues and the Capulets. They're, they're all very nice in their own way, but I don't think they sort of... Uh, mine was a sort of Fleming production, therefore, you know, the Broccolis didn't really... Well, that's my excuse. Maybe they just didn't like it. Um, but I have actually written the screenplay of The Girl at the Neon Door we were just talking about with a friend of mine, and that is tentatively, you know, just entering the first... Well, it's been, it's been in sort of not being produced since 1989. <laughs> and, and Birdsong's not been produced since 1993, so, you know, who knows. But it's quite, it's quite fun writing screenplays. It's a very, very different uh, technique. It's like sort of you have your hands tied behind your back um, and you have to tell a story in pictures and hardly using words and you can't say what your characters are thinking or feeling. So it's, it's a very, very challenging, but it's good fun. But I, I would only ever want to do it as a sort of six weeks a year for fun. Cause, but to actually live in that world and work in that world where no one ever turns up and everyone breaks their word all the time and nothing ever gets made would be a nightmare. Also doing a Jeeves book, and it's interesting that you, you say that writing a screenplay is an interesting exercise for a few weeks. Of course, an artist like Rubens, there's a whole studio system, there's a kind of hierarchy of what is done by the master, what is done by the master in the studio, what is done by the studio. And I just wonder, and I think in a way, those distinctions get more and more blurred over history in the case of an artist like Rubens. Do you see a hierarchy between your James Bond book, the, the book you're writing, the Jeeves stories, and in inverted commas, your own work? Or is this all, in fact, part of the same oeuvre, ultimately, and that we're culturally hung up on that kind of hierarchy? Well, I did want to do the James Bond book under a, a, a pen name, because I just thought it might confuse people who were expecting one of my rather sort of overwrought, emotional, you know, quasi-historical things, and suddenly they get sort of guns and martini. I think I can... Um, but they, the Flemings didn't want that. They wanted my name on it. And in the end, I said, fine. I think the important thing is not to... I mean, the distinction I've always made uh, sounds rather trite, but it's, it's been helpful to me, is that I take the, the books incredibly seriously. So I'm, you know, really... The one I've just finished, I'm just going over again now, and I, there will be not... There'll be no syllable left unretested again. But you can do that, but I think you don't have to take yourself seriously. 
So I think that's quite a sort of useful distinction to make. So therefore, if you feel like doing uh, Jeeves and Worcester, well, why not? I mean, I, I think the idea that there is some little small critical sort of Mount Olympus where various people say, ah, oh, well, of course, you know, his reputation has gone off now since he has done, fiddled around with this popular stuff. Well, you know, it's just ridiculous, really, isn't it? I mean, you know, Ian McKellen plays Widow Twanky at Christmas. I mean, you know, why not? Most nights of the week, I heard. <laughs> yes, as well, a terrible sitcom. Anyway, um, but of course, but I suppose more seriously, there is the question of voice and uh, actually to, to, to do a convincing James Bond or P.G. Woodhouse. Um, you've got to be, it's like, you know, a musician has perfect pitch or, you know, you can hear and reproduce exactly a note and if I have that ability I would certainly hope that that ability is also present in my own books though of course you know no one no one knows how my characters sound because I'm I'm just telling them how they do but but certainly that ability to hear is is quite important in, across the whole thing and I liked I liked the in the exhibition um, gosh Rubens he's, he's he's a bit like Kipling and he's so hopelessly out of fashion really isn't he and some of the rude things people said about him, I mean, Renoir said he was all surface. I mean, Renoir of all people, I mean, just so rude. But uh, he'll, he'll, I guess he'll come back, won't he? Because there's immense skill, but maybe he's just too sort of polymorphous, I don't know. And complexity. I mean, yeah. that's what the exhibition shows. In spite yes. of the small number of rubens that you hinted at, there's 31, but just for the rest Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he's, I think, I'm not saying there's a strong parallel with Kipling, but Kipling's a more complex writer than people think, isn't he? Oh, Rubens is certainly a more complicated artist than people think. He's not oh. just fat Flemish birds. No, 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 absolutely. No, no, Kipling is, uh, of course. Yes, Sebastian. It's going to come back to you. You, know, you. you put something in an email as a joke, and then it's out. <laughs> now it's, so on never Twitter, trust a it's on Twitter, it's on Facebook. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and then, it, then it gets recycled into newspaper profiles. Oh, you're very well known for your war novels, um, but recently you've been writing a lot more contemporary books, and I just wondered whether you'd ever be interested in writing about more recent conflicts, like Afghanistan or Iraq. Not really. Um, I don't think. I think that I've sort of, I'm kind of warred out, though actually the book I've just written has three chapters set in the Second World War in the Italian campaign. But I think that the first sort of half dozen books I wrote were about, as I was saying, earlier on, you know, who are we? How do we get into this mess? And the next ones have been a bit like, what are we? Why are humans so weird? You know, why are we mad? Uh, why do we have this extraordinary consciousness thing which no other animal has, which just seems so pointless, really? I mean, you, in order to outfight the Neanderthals for a dead cow, we didn't need Mozart. I mean, there's something very weird happened. Uh, and so that's... But I've sort of dealt with that too, and actually I hope the book I've just finished is a sort of summation of those two things, who are we and what are we? And I now need to move on to something completely different, something sort of comic maybe. But you're, you're saying a more recent conflict reminds me of um, when Birdsong had just come out over here. It was very difficult to find a publisher in America, really difficult. And my previous publisher called Little Brown, they said, you know, they'd read it and they said, mm, got a problem here. And so I went, I went to see this woman on Sixth Avenue and went upstairs and it was like being called into the headmaster's study, headmistress's study, and she put it down and said, you're going to have to cut almost all the war sections. <laughs> and, and furthermore, had you considered relocating it in a more recent conflict? <laughs> I said, well, not really, because it's sort of about the first one, right? <laughs> so I did, they didn't publish it. Someone else did. I was going to ask, um, 
Chris, did you say that you um, hadn't written much short stories before? Why is that? I don't know. I just It's not a form that I particularly like, the short story, to be honest. Um, I probably just read the wrong ones when I was growing up. I think your literary tastes get formed quite young. And I really loved the sort of long-distance novel. I mean, I was sort of brought up on sort of Jane Austen and Dickens. I could go long distances, even as when I was sort of 14, 15, no problem, you know, Barnaby Rudd, you know, whatever. Uh, Lawrence, D.H. Lawrence, though, of course, Lawrence wrote short stories. Um, but they seem to me either to fall into the sort of pat, they sort of had a little twist in the tail and a little joke at the end with a little sort of moral, which I thought was... Life's more complex and interesting than that. Or else they were just segments. They were just like a sausage you'd just taken a slice out, which might be well written and interesting in a way, but you know, they either had too much point or not enough point. But I subsequently, in the last 20 years or so, I've read, I've discovered a lot of Americans uh, that I really like, like Richard Yates and Laurie Moore and uh, George Saunders, who won this prize last year, who's fabulous, I think. So I just think I just read the wrong ones. But you know, it's never too late. Maybe that's my next project. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, that's it. your next project. Thank you. You've cracked it for me. If you visit uh, Rudyard Kipling's house, you walk into his study and you get, you know, it's his study. You can see. Sorry, whose house? Uh, Rudyard Kipling. Kipling's, yes. Yeah. Uh, you can Bateman's. You can see his glasses and his pens and everything else. You get that feeling. Do you think yes. if he came into your house, you would get a feeling, or do you just be faced with a, uh, a television screen and a, and a, and a printer? Um, well, funnily, I used to work in, a, in an office and some 10 minutes walk away on the on basis that I wanted this sort of complete silence and this sort of sacred, holy waiting for the muse to come. But I spent 25 years up there on my own, and I think I just went a bit mad. Not 25, 15 years. So I've moved home now, and I sort of perch in the you know, sort of sitting room at the top of the stairs with people coming and going, and... Um, you know, yet more deliveries from the internet for my son's fashionable new T-shirts. And I find it fine, actually. Um, but I don't... It's, I mean, th there's a very bookish room full of books, but you know, lots of people have that. So, no, I don't think you'd get the impression that you were walking into something uh, particularly uh, creative or um, august. But, you know, ob obviously, when the blue plaque goes up, that will change. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sebastian. Um, Sebastian will be signing books next door. No collection of short stories yet, but it sounds like they might be, they might be in the pipeline. Um, thank you all so much for coming. Thank you to the RA for hosting us in such a splendid room, and I hope you all get to see the Rubens exhibition. And Simon and I both hope to see you at a pin drop narration very soon. But right now, please join me in thanking our amazing narrator, Sebastian Vogt. <laughs> Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.